We praise you for the privilege to worship. We praise you that you have redeemed us in Christ. We exalt together in your presence, thanking you for what you have accomplished through his death and his resurrection. And knowing that whatever we face in this world, as we've sung these hymns and songs of hope and of confidence, of conquest and victory, we praise you that we walk in that victory and that we have no fear of what this life can bring, what judgment will come, what enemies will assault. We have no fear in Christ. We praise you that we can sing that way faithfully today. And for those who know not Christ, draw them to the light of your saving grace. Help them to see what they cannot see in their own strength and allow them to come to trust and faith even today. Lord, we now come before your word, the living word. And on this word, we long to feed and grow. May you bless this time. Spirit of God, teach us the word. Point us to the likeness of Christ. And Father, bless this moment together. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Christian, your confident trust in God is of greater significance than all the enemies of your soul. Your confident trust in God is greater than all the enemies of your soul. Heap together all your trials and suffering, all the dangers that you face, all the enemies that attack your soul. Heap them all into one big pile and look at them. The significance of that pile to who you are is nearly irrelevant compared to your trust in God. Trust-based relationship with Christ outshines, it outlasts, and it overcomes every hostile circumstance of life. We've been singing about that this morning. We want to turn to Psalm 27 today and consider this truth. It's a truth we don't naturally think about. We don't perceive it naturally which is one of the reasons that we gather today at the Lord's feet to be instructed, to be encouraged in our knowledge of this truth. We naturally think of God as trustworthy when our circumstances go well. When life is happening the way that we want it to happen, then we very easily see the goodness of the Lord and rejoice. It's when we face danger. It's when we suffer when life is not working out, that we question God's trustworthiness. As natural as this is, it's also entirely irrational. Let me illustrate. You choose, you choose, you must choose between one of two flights. And safety is the whole thing, where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. The first flight is this. It's a flight to Chicago from here. A sunny, cloudless 70 degree day, the winds are from zero to five miles per hour. You are assured on your app as you get into this airplane, if you'll take this flight, you're assured there will be no turbulence. This is going to be smooth sailing right across to Chicago. Second flight, it's the middle of the winter to Seattle. On a bitterly cold day, it's overcast, the skies are threatening, winds are gusting. And the app says you can expect some major turbulence. Bring a barf bag. (laughs) This is going to be a tough flight. 
You say, well, there, it, really, there's a choice here? I mean, put me on the flight to Chicago. But wait a minute, there's one more piece. The flight to Chicago is piloted by a deranged, suicidal, cocaine-addicted hijacker who has learned to fly an airplane on a simulator but has never actually flown one. He has no family and no reason to live. The second flight to Seattle is piloted by the airline's best pilot. He has a flawless record. He's a loving husband who's anxious to get home to his daughter's seventh birthday party at their home in Seattle. Now which one? I mean, put me on flight two. I'll take the turbulence. I'll bring my bag. But I'm going there. I am flying with that pilot. We see it, don't we? My trust in the pilot far exceeds the troubling turbulence that I might encounter on the flight. Every one of us faces the turbulence of troubling circumstances in our lives. We face many sorts of enemies that come against our souls. There is the betrayal of people that are close to us. There is the suffering of loss and loneliness and disease and financial trouble. There are the enemies that attack and harm us on many levels, both physically and literally and figuratively. But what is all important is the pilot, not the turbulence. The God who pilots our souls can be wholly trusted to bring us safely home, no matter the enemies that beset us along life's journey. We can face every storm without fear when we learn to orient our trust and orient our affections toward Christ. Now, having said that, there's a danger here, and that's that this is really obvious truth to us who have walked with Jesus for a while, who know the Bible. This is very clear, basic theology. And the danger with that, then, is that we drift off, and we set it aside as, I know this, God is trustworthy, I know that He'll get me through the storms of life, and we kind of flip a switch and turn it off. But we need to recognize how radically countercultural this kind of talk is. It's not a problem in the assembly. Before an open Bible, yes, we see these things to be true. We need to also recognize that we live in a culture that is purposefully living in denial of these very statements. It's all about the turbulence. The pilot means nothing is you're the pilot of your own destiny. So I think we need to think carefully and beyond just the obvious simple things that we could gain, that we could pass on a test, and rather think about the significant difference that there is in our lives as we consider this truth. In Psalm 27, David unfolds two characteristics believers must strive to adopt as we face the enemies of our souls. The first characteristic is a confident trust in God's saving power over our enemies. A real and living confidence in God over the enemies of our soul. Notice verse 1, this psalm of David, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident, or yet I will trust in the Lord. Noticing again verse 1, David focuses on two relationships here. The Lord, the Hebrew Yahweh, the God who is there, the God of covenant faithfulness who defends his people, and the second is David's enemies. In verse 1, he starts with the Lord, whom David describes as his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. These, I think, are just three parallel descriptions of who God is. Into the deep darkness of fear and confusion and pain David suffers at the hands of his enemies, God is presented as the one who enlightens David's way. The light of God's truth shows us where to go. The light of God's purity holds us accountable. The light of God's glory rejoices the heart and keeps everything in perspective. He is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. Against the enemies of our soul, He stands forth as our Savior. His salvation protects and preserves and purifies His people. His salvation redeems and reconciles and reforms His people. And God is our soul's stronghold. Think of it, believer, That was, in that day, usually a stone tower constructed in a walled city that provided ultimate safety for those seeking refuge from an enemy attack. That is who God is. And because that's who God is, David asks, Whom then shall I fear? Who is going to overcome this God in His protecting power, in His strength, In his love for his people, whom shall I fear? What enemy of my soul can ultimately harm me when God is my protector and my defender? Does God say this because, or rather, does David say this because he knew no turbulence in his life? He's saying these things just because he's really feeling it with his circumstances. They're going so well that he can praise God this way. Remember verse 2? No, He knows. He speaks of evildoers who assail me to eat up my flesh. They want to eat him alive. They want to consume him. They want him gone. His adversaries, his foes, he speaks of them in these terms. They're that kind of people. But because the Lord was his protector, David could also say it is they who will stumble and fall. Now the application of that to us is a bit challenging at times. But looking at it just straight up in David's life, he knew that the enemies of the Lord would fail. And sometimes the enemies that we face are God's people, but many times the enemies that we face, the enemies of our soul, the enemies of our flesh are forces that will fall. They will not survive. They will not overcome us. Perhaps he thought of, at least in his life, he could have thought of eventually of Saul and the assault of Saul against him, but eventually Saul would fall. He maybe thought of Absalom who would cause great difficulty to David and yet eventually would fall. We might think of King Josiah, of Ammon and Moab and Edom came against him and Josiah was brought to his knees in fear, calling out to God, deliver me from these people. 
God delivers him with a prayer and a song. All Hezekiah did, uh, Jehoshaphat, I got the wrong name, uh, Jehoshaphat, all he did was send the choir to sing and the enemies all killed each other. Or it might be Hezekiah with Assyria. This horde of soldiers coming against it could crush Israel by simply walking in a line. There were so many of them. And God took them out in the night. On and on we can see this idea in Scripture that it's the enemies of the Lord that will stumble and fall no matter how menacing they seem. David shifts the focus then in verse 3 from the individuals who are against him to the more formidable force of armies. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. There's a certain fear that comes when one is engaged in hand-to-hand combat. I don't do it very often, but I assume that's the case. When you've got a sword in your hand and there's people coming against you, there's an adrenaline rush. There's a, I have to stay alive here, fight. But imagine the nature of the fear that comes when in the dark, no electricity, soldiers got to wait till daybreak, And in the dark, there's a massing across the lines, the enemy. They're gathering all night. They're assembling for this battle, and you're trying to sleep. And you know that in the morning will come hordes of soldiers who want you dead. David says, audaciously almost, I don't fear. I can pillow my head in rest and know that even when an army is assembling and encamping against me, I can trust the Lord. Even then, I'll not fear man. I will be confident, or the Hebrew, I, the, the word is actually the word trusting. This is more of an interpretive translation, but my trust is in God. It reminds us of Jesus in that, that almost unimaginable situation. Matthew 8, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, one of the most unimaginable questions that you could ask in such a setting, why are you afraid? Notice what he says next. Why do you fear Oh, you of little faith. Anybody in their right mind would look at that sea and say, why do you think we're afraid? We're going to die here. The monster of the sea is going to crush us. And he said, the issue here is your fear that evidences a lack of faith. David is bold enough here to speak of that same type of faith. What enemy will I fear when God's my pilot? He's my stronghold. I find my safety and my refuge in Him. Think of the glory cloud between the Egyptian army and the Israelite army during the Exodus as the light illumined Israel at the same time stymieing the Egyptians and leading ultimately to their fall. This is that same spirit. Whatever story we want to put behind it in Scripture, here's that same spirit. I can trust God and the enemies of God will fall. We can put our faith and our confidence in Him in that way. 
at verse 4, the emphasis shifts from a confident trust in God's saving power over our enemies to a a longing desire for close fellowship with the Lord. Verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter. In the day of trouble He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, a boulder, a large outcropping of rock, a safe place. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Verse 4, when David prays that he may dwell in God's house all of his days, he's not praying that he'll become a Levite or an Aaronic priest. He refers here to the tabernacle where God's glory resided over the Ark of the Covenant. It's here where God's presence dwelt among His people. Depending on the timing of this psalm, that tabernacle may have been positioned on the hill above David's palace in Jerusalem. But however, literally or figuratively, He may be speaking here. The point is that it is God's glorious presence that David desires. He wants to be close to the Lord. Close in fellowship with God. This is no small matter. And don't take it that way. Here again, the switch can turn off. He wants to be close to God. That's nice. No, his enemies are encamping against him. There's a horde of attackers. And in that moment, what he wants is to be close to God. In the midst of the turbulence and trial, it's not turbulence go away, it's God draw near to me as I draw near to you. I want to be, in a sense, in your presence at all times. And I think there's a general principle for all of God's people here, and that is that the attacks of our enemies, whether physical, relational, financial, emotional, or if they are literally sword-wielding enemies, those attacks are going to draw you closer to the Lord or further away. And notice it in your own heart. Learn to discern it. When you're under a withering attack of some sort, when things are not going well, there's fears and there are dangers. In those moments, there's a coldness that can come in between us and the Lord. Or do we find ourselves under that attack saying, God, draw me closer. I want to dwell in your presence. I want to be with you. You see the connection? Here's where it is so utterly countercultural. It's not my trials mean that they I have to work to make them go away. And there may be a legitimate way of doing that. But it's rather that in the challenges that I face and the attacks that I face, I need God. I need to draw closer. I want to draw closer. And then notice in verse 5, how David speaks of God's protective presence. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He'll lift me high upon a rock. Here again, the protective work of God to the one who comes to gaze upon his beauty, who is drawn into his presence. Ironically, the tent where God's glory resides is a stronghold. I mean, how can you compare those two? 
a stone tower of protection compared to a flimsy tent. But in David's case, this stronghold, this place of security is not a stone tower, but it is the presence of the Lord. The triumph for David while enemies rage against him is to worship God in devotion. He longs for the shrieks of fear that so naturally echo through the halls of his mind to be replaced with glad songs of joy. Our protection against the enemies of our soul does not come by controlling our circumstances. It comes by drawing near to the Lord in confident trust, in reliant faith in the midst of those trials. Whatever you face, whatever enemy attacks, there is a Lord who loves you. Go to Him. Seek His face. Call upon Him. Draw near. And in this, as we apply to our own lives, what an important connection we should be making between the challenges of life and the corporate gathering of God's people for worship. When we sing as a church, there is in this place a corporate announcement of Christ's victory. There is here a triumphant song against the darkness that Christ has conquered, that He will conquer every enemy, that He will conquer death in the end. And so we should come considering the elements of worship as we're part of that together, as we consider the times in prayer before the throne, as we lift up these glad songs, as we consider God's Word, as we give, as we edify one another, as we break from assembly. All of this is a statement of victory over the darkness and how important it is that we gather as David longed to gather in the presence of the Lord and to exalt in this way. Now my head shall be lifted up, he says, verse 6, above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and sing and make melody to the Lord. We must, as God's people, make this connection between facing enemies and worshiping God. Even the corporate worship of the Lord is part of this equation, an important aspect. Now, as is typical of Hebrew poetry, as we noticed last week as well in Psalm 26, the psalm is arranged in a structure known as chiasm. Further, the theme of verses 4 through 6 is now doubled in length in verses 7 through 12. This is why I arrange it this way. I didn't say anything about this last week, but just knowing how psalms are often arranged, this is fairly consistent. The next point is not a different point, but is a repetition of the preceding point. And then in uh, A2, we'll come back to the first theme. But we find here now a repetition of this concept of a longing desire for close fellowship with God. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. We see here again David's heart longing for God. Verse 8, you have said, that is God has said, seek my face and my heart, says David, says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. God invites us to seek His face, not after the enemies of our soul cease to assault us, not merely in thanksgiving that He's delivered us, but He calls us to seek His face while they beset us. Cancer, abuse, 
betrayal, persecution, opposition, loss, enemies that want to bring us down unjustifiably. What are they? Here's thinking differently. They're a call to worship God. They're a call to come into His presence, to seek His face, to in our desperation go to God. And we must have compassion for one another in our suffering. But we must also admit to ourselves that suffering provides no license to wallow in the wrongs that are done to us. Self-pity is as natural to us as hunger. When we feel that we've been unjustly treated, we've been unfairly treated, it's as natural as hunger to pity ourselves, to wallow in what has happened and how we have been hurt and who has done what to us. But we must orient our lives at all times to pursue fellowship with God. And when my self-pitying and my wallowing takes me into myself and away from the Lord, I'm wrong. No matter what has been done to me, no matter what trial I've suffered, no matter how unjust the enemy, if those trials take me away from fellowship with the Lord, I've got to repent and change. And those who help us see this are our friends, not our enemies. We can almost hear David's voice strain with passion, can we not, in verse 9? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Under the withering attack of enemies, we have a tendency to think in such terms that we've been abandoned, that God is not listening. And David very honestly here lifts this prayer, but he's coming to God. He's knocking on the door. He's on his knees and he's saying, God, don't be silent. Hear my cry as I draw close to you. God does not callously turn his face away from us, but in a manner of speaking, our cold hearts can shut the door and veil his face. David doesn't want that. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in, he knows. Now, we're not sure, is this a historical note? Maybe David's parents abandoned him when they were in Moab and he was running from Saul and maybe in some way they didn't come to support him or help him or maybe they denied their knowledge of him as son. It's possible that there's some historical reference here. It's also possible this is just figurative and we might translate it something like, if, even if my parents abandoned me. We're not sure with David and his specific circumstances but let me say this to some of us most pointedly. For some of us, parental abandonment is no figure of speech. We've suffered it. We've faced it. No one can hurt a parent like a child. And no one can hurt a child like a parent. We face some very common counsel in this world that seems to run right into the teeth of Psalm 27. It goes something like this. If your parents have failed you, especially your father, if they were hypocrites, 
If they failed to provide for you or to love you, if they harmed you, then you are a victim. And everyone around you should lower their expectations and should shower you with pity. You should even expect to struggle with your faith in God as a Christian because if you cannot trust your earthly father, how could you ever be expected to trust your heavenly father? Such counsel is folly. It's ridiculous. David offers here a corrective. My parents forsook me. Or if even if they did. Fact. What does he say in response to that? God never will. Ever. If the trust you place in God as Savior rises only as high as the trust you place in your parents as sinners, you cannot be saved. That's no Savior who just rises to where your parents were, no matter how good they were. Saving faith in God is saving faith in God. It is not some marginal trust in a somewhat trustworthy God whom you have molded into the likeness of your sinful father. That is what we call idolatry. That's a false God. No matter how wonderful our parents may have been, they never measure up to God. And no matter how terrible they have been, God is not that kind of a father. And to impose that upon him is pure idolatry and gets no one anywhere good. A million miles from that type of thinking, David's longing heart continues to be poured out to the Lord. Perhaps my father and mother fail me, but God never will. He will take me into his tent. He will shield me in his presence. He will lift up his face upon me. And so I plead with you, God, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. They want to take me down. What do I want? I want your presence. I want you to teach me your way. Whenever we are facing the enemies of our soul, We need the counsel of the Lord to think rightly about them and how we should respond and rightly about Him and how we should be taught to filter the situation. Again, we see in verses 11 and 12 the two relationships, enemies, adversaries, false witnesses, people breathing out violence, and secondly, the Lord, who under these withering attacks is two things to David, one teacher his counselor, his coach, his light in how to respond, and secondly, his path leveler. A reference to ancient roads which could be very treacherous when uneven, falling apart, but would be leveled out when repaired and thus safer. And said in our terms, perhaps, God is my pilot. He's piloting the plane until he lands it home. David concludes the psalm by returning to the opening lines of thought, as I mentioned, as is commonplace in Hebrew hymns. He ends the hymn on a courageous and hopeful note as he stands against the withering attacks of his enemies, 
referencing again his confident trust in God's saving power over those enemies. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You can look at the marginal note there perhaps, but it's really uh, irrelevant to the meaning of the passage. We would ask in light of verse 13, Christian, what enemy is assaulting your soul? What attack are you facing in this sinful world? Here's the promise of God. He will show you His goodness. He'll show you His goodness in the land of the living. I don't think that's the eternally living, though certainly that will be true there, but I think in the land of the living is here, this world, as opposed in that context to Sheol, the realm of the dead. He will show you His goodness here, in this life. As zealously as David sought God's goodness, he equally trusted God to provide. It's not, well, that's God's job. It's how he relates to everyone. We rub the rabbit foot of luck when we talk to God and know that somewhere he'll come through and turn things our way. Not that. David speaks as a redeemed man. He speaks as one who has been possessed by God, has been rescued by God. And so he knows that in this life, God is for me. Not because God's for everyone. He's not for David's enemies. Not for those who oppose his law and his will. And on this side of the cross, what more glorious light we see. Jesus' death in the place of sinners is where our redemption is located. It was a powerful demonstration of His goodness in the land of the living. Coming to this place among the lost and dying as a sacrifice for us to pay the penalty of our sin, to reconcile us to God, to give us forgiveness of sin. That's His goodness. We can come to that goodness and embrace that goodness by His grace. And I call you to that if you know not Christ as Savior. There's not a confidence that your sins are forgiven. Christ has purchased that redemption. And we can speak then as the redeemed of the Lord and know that in the land of the living, His goodness will flow to His people. But for believers, that goodness we saw in the land of the living will one day certainly burst into full radiance on that eternal day when we will gaze at the beauty of our Lord forever, sin will be gone. The sin that is internal, the sin that is, comes in by way of attack from others, all of that will be gone. And so how appropriate to end verse 14 with the word wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We heard David, David here, I, I sense him he's talking to us. But I sense him here talking to himself. Wait, wait. The Lord will show up. His goodness will come. If it isn't in this life, it will be in the next. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for deliverance is not enjoyable. But it is essential for our sanctification. We need to take on this challenge to wait for God in His time. And God likes to wait, it seems. We take this idea. There's a family that's going camping. And there's a three-year-old girl and her dad as they're unpacking the van. She finds a big, huge duffel bag full of food. 
It's in the car, and she wants to get it to the campsite. So she grabs a duffel bag, and she lifts, and she can't even get the thing off the, off the ground. I mean, it is so heavy. It's way past her capacity to lift this big bag. A dad can do three things, probably an infinite number of things, but three things in this illustration. One, he can just, as she puts her hands on it, he can kind of just come over and say, let me get that, let me get that. And he picks up this big bag. and doesn't even really let her test the weight of it. It's a legitimate thing to do. But dad could wait for his daughter to try to lift the bag for a little while and realize that she needs help. And then he comes along and he lifts it with her. You get that side of that handle. I'll take this on the handle here. And we're going to carry this bag together. And she's like, wow, this thing is really heavy. I really need my dad's help on this but I'm doing it, I'm getting it. And she's never really fully recognized how heavy it is. The third thing he can do is just sit back. Let her pull and struggle. And then she gets mad and frustrated. Dad, come and help me. And he does something else and he's pulling some other things and he kind of just doesn't really address her. And she keeps pulling on the... And she gets from the place where the frustration's gone and now it's, I can't lift this. I I just simply cannot lift this bag at all. And time passes, and she's impatient, but she knows, I can't do this. And eventually, Dad comes over and takes the bag and lifts it over to the campsite. Our father seems to like that third approach, doesn't he? Isn't it true with you? He just doesn't sweep in and grab the problem and take it away off of my plate very often. He doesn't swoop in and like have me help and we'll just get this out of the way. But so often he allows the enemies of our soul to continue the attack day after day after day. And the answer to it is what? God is gone. God doesn't care. God is on vacation. He's too weak. No, the answer, Christian, is wait. Patient endurance as you're dealing with that bag God's teaching you something he's teaching me something I don't like to wait I want the problems to end I want the attack to stop now for some of us now to the end of our life that enemy of your soul that is after your body that is after vital relationships that is after your soul is going to continue on to the day you meet Christ. Christian, wait for his deliverance. That's the call. And many times in the land of the living, his goodness will come. He will lift the weight. He will take that trial. He will bear us home. But what we can know is that in any event, our Heavenly Father will show up. He will land the plane. He will bring us into His presence. So when the darkness does not lift, when the enemy attack is withering, learn to wait for the Lord's deliverance. Take courage. Be strong in the Lord. Wait on Him. But know this, Christian, he will deliver. In his time, for your good, for his glory, he will rescue his people from every enemy in the end. This we know, obvious here in our gathering, 
We could pass a test if it laid this out. But we need to know this in the depths of our soul, that God is our stronghold, our salvation, our deliverer, and He will bear us all the way home. He will. Wait. Be patient. Trust. Do not wallow in what has been done to you. Do not self-pity in the face of the trials and the difficulties that others place upon you or the trial physically that you face. Wait. This is so countercultural. this thinking. We need to recognize that. We're not called here to turn to certain social constructs when we have suffered and to know how we are oppressed and who has done what to us and what can and cannot be expected of us because enemies control our future. Many would object to what I've said here today is naive, outdated, a mere coping mechanism that has long passed its shelf life. This is just that naive, foolish, just trust God. Nobody can really hurt you. I think in answer to that, we need to recognize in light of Psalm 27, God's faithful people stand strong in trial because their feet are on a solid rock. That rock is Christ and He is there. They seek not better circumstances ultimately, but a better vision of God in the process. What I recognize, no matter the trials that assault my soul, what I recognize is I don't know God as I should. I'm not as close as I need to be. And any trial that chases me there is in the design of God in some sense, though an enemy, also a friend. That pushes me to His feet. That calls upon me to trust His hand. So in the end, it's not about who harmed you or how they've harmed you as life affecting as such suffering can in fact be. In the end, it's not what pain or loss you have suffered. It's not the dangers and the threats that you encounter. What is most defining about you is the metal of your confidence in God. To what degree do you trust Him to be who He has revealed Himself to be? And believe it. Such intimate trust bridges the gap between the dangers and assaults that we face and the deliverance that God promises. So when the turbulence of this life rattles you and even lays you low, know that your pilot will bring you all the way home safely. Ethan and I on a mission trip to Africa got over the equator. I don't know if this is a thing or not. I'll talk to the pilot in the audience. But it, getting over that equator was two hours of radical turbulence that never stopped. We lost one supper between us. But it was two hours of never-ending, really violent turbulence. And I, I remember in that spot thinking, we're going down here. We're going to end up in the ocean. What's the name of this ocean? I don't even know what ocean we're over here, but it's going to be our grave. This thing's going to take us down. But there wasn't a panic there. 
because, and I'm just going to talk on a human level, we'll talk about the prayers that were offered, but they were, but on a human level is we got to trust this pilot. You can't scream out the window at the turbulence and say, stop it out there. You can't curl up in a ball and somehow fall asleep all of a sudden so that you don't notice it anymore. You're rattling all over the place. You can't do anything but say, by the grace of God, this pilot's going to take us home. And the focus, if it's only on what we are experiencing right now in this moment, if that's all that you're thinking about, you're in really, really bad shape. But if you think long in hope and trust, this plane will eventually get to where we're going, will land, and we've got to trust the pilot to get us there. This is not an attempt to dismiss the intensity of the suffering that we can endure at the hands of others. It is rather a testimony to the depth of protection we find in the shelter of God's presence. In fact, in that tough flight, I can tell you that the ultimate confidence was not in the pilot. It was in the Lord of the storm who has our lives in his hands, our days numbered, and will take us home in his time and way. There can be no fear in those moments as we trust him. But it is the spirit that says with confident trust, God is with me. This is what we want to take, that we can say with David, in fact, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and you will bring my soul home in peace. This is our God. Where is our faith? Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, for this confidence, this trust that we can have in you. What a gift you are to us, an eternal gift a delight beyond our capacities to understand, a delight and a presence that blows our affections away. You are so great and greatly to be praised. But our faith is so weak. We side so easily with the disciples in the small boat. What do you think we're afraid of? But we so seldom ask, why is my faith so small? God, I pray that you deepen our faith, that you'd bless your people to trust you in all times. And for those who know not this pilot, who know you not as the captain of their soul, their protector, their stronghold, their fortress and salvation, I pray that you draw them to that light today. Through Christ we pray.